0: So far in the summer, we've been doing a um, a series on psalms where each person's been able to pick a psalm to preach on. So that's what I'm doing today. Just a little bit of background on the psalms, really. So they're a book in the Old Testament, right about in the middle, if you just open your Bible up in the middle. And they are a collection of poems and songs. And so they sort of capture the innermost thoughts, prayers, praises from the authors of the Old Testament. And a lot of the psalms are credited to be written by King David. And the one that I'm reading today is one of those psalms. So it's Psalm 19. It's going to be up on the screen behind me, but I'm just going to go ahead and read it. So it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out in all the earth; into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is is pure, enduring forever the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So as I sort of go through this psalm today, we're going to break it down into a few little bits. But I want us to see how God's law or his word, the Bible, his commands, his promises are not a rule book to be bound by, but in fact something that revives us, something that brings us to life. So as I said, I'm going to go through this psalm in sections and I'm going to look at the first six verses first and then the rest of the psalm. Something to know about me, though, is that I love to look at night skies. You know, like when you see in, like, Norway or something, and it's like you can see all the stars and all the Milky Ways. When I was about 17, I really wanted to be an astronaut because of this. I saw it and was like, I need to be there. So I had a look into it, and I realised that to become an astronaut, there's kind of two routes. You either go down, like, the pilot route to, like, pilot the spacecraft or whatever. But you have to join, like, the Royal Air Force, which was, like, a lot of exercise, a lot of commitment, which I wasn't ready to do. So I was like, right, I'll go down the science route and be a scientist to go and, like, study space or something. And I did that for a little bit. Um, I started to learn Russian on Duolingo because that's a really great language for communicating with other Russian astronauts. And I was really committed to it, but it kind of petered out after a while. Um, And I didn't pursue it, and it was fine. But what really drew me to it was just seeing like the sky and the stars and being like, that's amazing, that's something I want to know more. And so this is kind of the sort of revelation that David is having in this in this passage. So I'm gonna go through each verse, but he's looking at creation and looking at the sky and having this really emotional, vivid reaction to it. So verse one says: The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So, David starts off this psalm by looking up to the heavens, and not like a spiritual heavens, but quite literally the physical skies above him. And, like I said, if you've ever seen those photos of the sky without any uh, light pollution, that is the kind of sky that David was looking at. He would have been able to see something that was so vast and realize that it was created by someone, created by a God even vaster than that. So, David starts this psalm looking into the sky and having this revelation of a mighty creator and a mighty God. Verse 2 says, day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. So he's saying creation pours forth speech, that day after day we can look at creation and have that same revelation of an almighty creator being the designer behind it. So David had this revelation way back when, when this psalm was written. I have this revelation when I look at um, the night and the stars. And I wonder if you have something, some sort of creation where you look at it and just go, wow, there's got to be some big designer, big creator behind this. And so day after day, creation speaks of a grand designer. Verse three and four says, there's no speech or language where the voice is not heard. The voice goes out into all the earth, the words to the end of the world. so God's glory doesn't only translate into English or whatever language you speak it's not only certain people that look at creation and feel something feel some majesty or wonder it's all of humanity that sees creation and hopefully has some sort of reaction to it as well David who's writing this is nationalities cultures generations different from you and I yet he still feels that same pull towards creation and that same glory that I hope we might see when we look at creation and no one can hide from creation either no one can hide from God in the same way, but there's more on that that will come to a bit later. In verse 5 and 6, it says, In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit towards the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So in this bit, David is poetically describing the sun. Again, he's creatively expressing his awe at the wonder of creation. He's giving a really personable story to a really scientific process. He's showing the person of God behind the universe's processes. And he's saying no one is hidden from his heat. And it's a really powerful symbol of the extent of God's power and God's mightiness that no one can escape from him. So as I've just been through the psalm, we've seen that David has spent the whole first half of the psalm proclaiming God's glory and majesty from what he can just see in nature around him. He has this revelation from God that we, that, that we might have when we look at creation around us. Um, that God will reveal himself to us through that creation. He reveals that he is an almighty creator. He reveals his attention to detail. He reveals that he's able to create an entire universe. And he reveals every detail to every person as well, because we all live and we are his creation. So we can worship God, not by worshipping creation, but by worshipping the creator behind creation, using creation as a reminder of where we came from and where, where our universe came from. So I think what comes along with the first part of this passage that stands out to me and I hope stands out to you is that there's nowhere on earth where creation doesn't display some wonder or glory of God. There's no part of this earth that doesn't scream to humanity that there's something bigger behind this that created all of this. And I think that what David was trying to get at quite bluntly is that there is no way we'll be able to stand before God and didn't say we, we know he didn't, didn't say that we didn't know he existed. So there was an American astronomer Um, called Robert Jastrow, who said this, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So he really nails it on the head, that to look at our, own, to look at our universe um, only under the lens of science isn't wrong, but it's not the full picture. In my impin- opinion, and I hope that this passage shares the same feeling with you as well, is that to ignore creation and the wonder and the awe is to ignore what indicates a higher power that created it. What David is seeing is a really emotional reaction to the beauty and glory of the creation. And to me, that's a big, fat indicator that there's a powerful and divine God behind it. So I don't think there's any excuse or any reason that we can dream up to be able to ignore that. But again, this passage can't be considered in isolation from the rest of the psalm. So this part of the passage in theology is often named the general revelation of God. So it means that it's a revelation of God that everyone can have just by seeing creation around them. But the second part of this passage speaks to a revelation of God that can only be sought out or revealed to people who choose to follow God. So there's an act of choice to be made in that. So if this first part of the passage is about proclaiming God's glory in a really majestic sense, you know, showing him as an almighty, powerful ruler, then the second part of the passage is about showing God as a really personal, individual and caring God. So the first part shows how we can worship God through recognising his creation, and the second part will show how we can worship God through abiding his word and abiding his law. God's revealed himself to all of us through nature, but he's also revealed himself to us through his word. So if we come back to what that astronomer says, if he had read these first six verses of Psalms, he probably would have agreed with it, but he maybe might have ignored this second part that I'm about to go on to. So I hope that we'll see that it's essential that we don't ignore this second part. It's also instrumental in understanding God as a really caring, personal and loving father, not just this big almighty creator of the earth. So I'm going to move on to the next bit of the passage. But before I do, I just want to do a little bit of an information drop. So the next bit of the passage refers a lot to God's law. So they might say his statutes, his precepts, his commands, lots of different words that just mean his law. So I thought it would take a second to just actually look into what the Bible is referring to when it talks about God's law. So as this book is in the Old Testament, so it's before the New Testament, before Jesus, David was writing before Jesus had come to the earth. Before Jesus came and died on the cross, God had given Moses, some guy in the Old Testament, a very specific set of laws. He's more than that, but too much to get into. (laughs) He was given a very specific set of laws that they had to keep in order to be obedient to God. And whenever someone sinned or didn't uphold those laws, they had to sacrifice animals um, to God in order to be atoned for their sins. So another way that these these laws are described are as God's words. And this is because these laws were given directly to Moses, Moses from God. So they were what God wanted to say to his people. So when David was writing this psalm, his scriptures were Moses' laws, which were quite literally the word of God. We now live in a standpoint where we have even more scriptures, so we have an entire Bible of divinely inspired stories, prophecies, instructions, guidance, etc., and we also live after Jesus' death and resurrection. So in John, which is in the New Testament, it tells the story of Jesus. There's there's other Gospels, but this one, um, in the very beginning of the book, um, in John chapter 1, it says, um, "'In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning.'" And then later on in the passage, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So if we read into the Gospels, we know that this passage is referring about Jesus. So what it's telling us is that Jesus was God and is God. He was also the embodiment of God's word and God's law. He was and is God's word. So for us as people who live on the other side of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus and everything he stood for is also God's law. We aren't bound by the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament as Jesus fulfills that, and I'll dive into that a bit more later. But the goal of both the Old Testament laws and Jesus' sacrifice is to bring us closer to God. So for the sake of this passage, we can think about them sort of one in the same way. So I have a little sister who, when she was younger, wasn't very good at listening to the rules. So my mum would give us some laws, some rules, and usually, for the most part, they were to keep us safe. So one, for example, was when she was about three years old, there was a cup full of washing up liquid on the side. So my mum said to my little sister, don't drink that because my sister thought it was apple juice. Don't drink that, it's washing up liquid. My three year old sister insisted that it was apple juice and she wanted to drink it. So she didn't listen to my mum and have a very visceral image of the next steps that happened. She reached up to the counter, chugged this washing up liquid, projectile vomiting just started. And my mum, of course, was right. And my little sister didn't listen or didn't trust that that rule that she instilled was a good thing. Another time, she, uh, my mum was doing some ironing and my sister was grabbing out like, a, a, lot of little, um, a lot of things around her. My mum again said, don't touch the iron, it's hot, quite a good rule. Um, my little sister did not think that was a great rule, so she planted her hand onto the iron and burnt her entire hand. So the laws, or the rules, they weren't really laws, but the things that my mum said were good, they were to preserve my sister to keep her safe. And they required an element of my sister to trust. She didn't really seem to think that those rules were the case. But if she had trusted my mum, she would have saved projectile vomiting and would have saved burning her hand. Um, And so sometimes when we hear things about God's law or like rules and things like that, um, we can think of them a bit of these sort of like restrictive sets of rules. But this passage really puts God's word in a different light to that. So I'm going to go through each of these verses because each verse in the next bit of the passage takes time to tell us what God's word is like and what it does to us. So I'm going to start off with what God's word is like. So verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. So within God's word, we find everything we need to know about who God is and who we are. It tells us the effect of our sins, it tells us about the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, it tells us what we need to know about eternity, about how we can come closer to God, it is complete, never contradictory and never wrong in science or history, it's perfect. It then says the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, in some translations it says the statutes of the Lord are sure, so the word of God is reliable and certain, God reveals himself to David as this reliable and steady God. Verse 8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right. They are morally right, they are practically right, and they are universally right. Our world may not reflect that in society, but if there was a society where everything and everyone obeyed God, everything would be right. Verse 8 says, the rest of verse 8 says, the commands of the Lord are radiant. Other translations also say that the commands of the Lord are pure. So God is completely without sin and impurity. Nothing that comes from him can ever be impure. Nothing that comes from him can ever lead us into impurity. So they are radiant, they draw us to him, not away from him. Verse 9 says, the fear of the Lord is pure. Obedience to the Lord out of pure awe and reverence is what it means when it says fear of the Lord. So obedience to his word is pure, or in other translations it's clean. It will never fade, it will never corrode, it will never tarnish, and he is everlasting. And verse 9 says, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether Righteous. So David summarises all of these amazing elements of God, um, of God's word together, that together they are righteous and they are a firm rock to stand on. He then in the next verse goes on to describe them in an even deeper and more revering level. It says God's word is both far more valuable and precious than gold, yet they are also sweeter than honey. So King David was a really wealthy man, like probably the wealthiest man of his time, but he knew on a personal level how deep God's love for us was that it was so much more precious than the gold that he would have had a lot of Um, but he also had this really emotional reaction to to God's laws as well that they were also sweet so it wasn't only essential for David to keep God's law because they were precious and valuable but also because of the effect on him that they had he said that they were sweet so God and the revelation of who he was was sweet to David have we ever thought of God and what we choose to obey in God as sweet? It's not often the reaction that we maybe have when we think of obedience. And I think sometimes, especially from from the perspective of people that don't know God or don't who don't believe in God in the same way, God can be seen as this really scary rule instilling tyrant. But actually, what His law, but actually it is His law that leads us to know Him as this perfect pure radiant trustworthy and right God it brings us to know his presence which is sweet and caring and is fierce for us and is awe-striking but I think David captures that in the second half of all of these verses so verse 7 it says God's law revives the soul the word revive makes me think of something coming back to life in other translations it uses the word converts the soul so it gives us life it changes us it restores us it brings us back to God Verse 7 again says, God's law makes wise the simple. It gives us a wisdom and understanding of life that intellect only goes so far to do. We have an understanding of eternity. We have an understanding of our identity. We have an understanding of our world and of our universe. People who are looking for answers, looking for truth, can come to the gospel and find it in God. Verse 8 says, God's law gives joy to the heart. That's joy to know we're saved, from a ter- saved for eternity. Joy to know we don't have to find identity and purpose within ourselves but in a perfect and mighty God. It says God's law enlightens us. So God's pureness brings us light into the dark times. Verse 9 says that God's law endures forever. So all of these amazing things that God gives us when we obey him aren't just for today. They weren't just for David back then. They're, They're available forever. So I think these verses show that it's pretty clear that to follow God is not signing up for a life of restriction or condemnation, but actually a fulfilling life of righteousness, trustworthiness, peace, purity... And so much more from a God who can perfectly provide that. But at the same time, there is a choice to be made to do that. Verse 11 says, By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The reward of when we're obedient to God and when we receive um, God's presence is that we inherit all of these good things that I've gone through. All of these are promises. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, salvation meant having to stick to these laws that Moses brought and making physical sacrifices for when those laws weren't obeyed. But today we live after a very important sacrifice that Jesus made. He gave his life on the cross that we can be perfect and holy before God. So if we choose to follow Jesus, therefore choosing to follow God's word, because that's who Jesus is, we're gifted this inheritance and all of these amazing things that this passage reveals about God. And in this passage, this also has like quite a distinct language shift from the first part of the passage. So verses 1 to 6 that I read use a translation for the word God that's El, and it's a very sort of generic translation in our English language. It's the sort of word that, um, that any religion could use to describe God, any religion could use to describe this big, almighty person. So it shows this sort of generic understanding of God being a really powerful and mighty being. But the second part that we've just gone through switches to use the word Lord, and it's a translation from the word Yahweh. Yahweh is a really personal name that God revealed to Moses in in the book of Exodus. Yahweh is the God of a covenant, a promise of love and faithfulness to his people. And that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. So Yahweh is a much more personal way to describe God. It's a God who loves us and wants to be close to us. So the heavens declare God's glory and creation screams of this amazing almighty God. But his word, his Bible and Jesus reveal even more God's personal voice. So by obeying God's law and obeying Jesus, we are entering into this promise and this promise gives us a chance to be in his presence, to be close to him for all of eternity. So everything I've talked about so far does boil down to the fact that there is something, or more specifically someone, that we have to obey. And I think it can be a really hard concept to grasp when our perspective of obedience looks different in society or the way society views obedience tarnishes the idea so to us, obedience might be looking like forced to obey a regime that's harmful or unjust, or it might look like being forced to obey someone out of abuse. It might look like lack of freedom, or it might just simply be that we think obedience means that we remove ourselves from everything of fun. But I really hope that this passage has started to show you that that isn't what God is. His law revives us, it provides us life. It's freedom to not live in the restraints of this world, to not live by the values that society sets, to not live by the standards or identities or the roles that society gives us. Like my sister in the scenario before, we might not always understand how obeying Jesus is good for us. Like my sister didn't understand how obeying my mum would mean she wouldn't projectile vomit everywhere. Sometimes it might feel like singling ourselves out in an uncomfortable way. It might feel like opposing the majority of what society says and so on. But in my sister's scenario, my mum's rules were safe, they were right and they were true. And the things that God asks us to do, asks us to do are true and are right. And it means that we have a close, close relationship with him. And that is a relationship with a God who is trustworthy, holy, pure, full of peace and love. Everything that you see mentioned in, in these verses. And that's God, God's revelation to us through his word. So I really want to challenge us to think about how we're being obedient to God. Are we being obedient to what we see written in the Bible, to what Jesus spoke about? Are we being obedient to what the Holy Spirit says to us? Are we spending time in God's Word so that we can know his law and therefore can know his love on an even deeper level? There's a couple of verses left at the end of this passage that I haven't spoken about yet, but they show how sin applies to all of us. So there's a type of sin that it talks about that shows why we need someone like Jesus to make all the sacrifices for our sins. It shows us how obedience to God isn't striving for perfection by our own means, but by accepting Jesus' sacrifice, which makes us perfect in the eyes of God. So I'm just going to read verses 12 to 13, which say, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will become blameless, innocent, or great transgression." So David is talking about sins or errors that we don't necessarily see in ourselves as well as the willful sins that we do consciously and they're both something that we have to ask forgiveness for and it's faults that we don't necessarily even know that we're doing and I'm not saying that and I don't think David is saying it to beat ourselves down and to see ourselves as these sort of broken and um, unlovable, unvaluable sort of things but it is to admit and realise that humans are inherently sinful we have inherent imperfections and wrongs and so in order to be able to approach a perfect God we have to be forgiven of those sins and so this knowledge should actually desire us to move closer to God to move closer to that perfection to obey him and come closer to that righteousness because we're not going to be able to find that perfection anywhere else we're not going to be able to find it in ourselves or in society and that is what David speaks about when he writes in verse 10 with God's law that God's law is purer than gold and sweeter than honey it should drive us into attraction to obey Jesus because he has already resolved that issue of imperfection not to drive us away from God because we think we're not good enough Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means that we don't have to strive for perfection and we don't need to be perfect it means that obedience to him is all we need to be obedient to God's word it's an incredibly easy gift that should be attracting us to God it's a free way to have our sins atoned for so in this passage that we just read, David writing about God's law refers to the law of the Old Testament, like I said before, which is Moses' law. But it's slightly different now that we have Jesus. So I'm just going to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, because that kind of sums up where we stand sort of now. And so it says, um, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. So Jesus shows us what he intended of that old law. Not to come and abolish it and say, do whatever you want. Not to be bound by legalism where our salvation only comes from these actions that we do. But instead he fulfills that law. Jesus fulfills the sacrifices that we need to atone for our sins. He fulfills the ceremonial practices in the Old Testament that we needed to cleanse us before we could approach God. He made it so that if we follow him, the living flesh version of the word of God, we are entering into all of these amazing things that David talks about. For free. And so to me, it's not only an attraction to walk into something amazing and to run after it as much as I can, but it's also a message of grace. It means that we don't have to be perfect at making ourselves better or good enough. We only need to recognize where we've gone wrong or recognize that we're inherently sinful, apologize, and let Jesus' as a sacrifice make us clean. I don't want you to get me wrong that it's not a get out jail free card to do whatever we want because it's not. You know, We should be obedient to God. We should see like in this passage that to follow him is to buy into all of these amazing things but God has already solved the issue of imperfection through Jesus so we can live on in obedience to God without fear of condemnation, without fear of needing to be perfect. So I just want to finish off today by giving a bit of context as to why I picked this passage and what it's been doing in my life and the hope that it sort of applies the same to yours. So the thing that really stood out to me when I read this passage was verse 7 which says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And around that time that I read this, this was before we did sort of this sermon series, I began to feel that I'd been taking less and less time to make sure I was obedient to God. Um, when I was interacting with other people I felt that I'd been taking less time to care and stand up for what I thought was right and I was letting more things in my life slide and I was beginning to feel sort of jaded and sort of caught myself thinking of how it was really burdensome to follow God, there were all these rules that I had to follow and it didn't apply well in society and I read this and in an instant in that verse God spoke to me and showed me that the obedience he requires from us is not a burden but it is a gift of freedom it's a gift to be able to come into the presence of God, who is perfect. It revives me. It's steadfast. It gives me joy, and so on. And I knew that, though I hadn't been, do- I knew that I hadn't been doing that. And it took a conscious step for me to repent. I had to say sorry for not doing that. So you might be sitting here and asking, how can I get in on those amazing things that David says that he gets from God? Well, the first thing to know is that Jesus' love has no bounds and no limits. Jesus died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. We simply have to say sorry for our sins, and by doing that, we're accepting Jesus' sacrifice. So I found myself, when I was first reading this passage, praying the prayer that David writes in the very last verse, verse 14, and it says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This passage was such a personal revelation of God as a kind and loving father and that to obey obey him is not to sign away life or enjoyment but to sign up to incredible inheritance, to sign up to someone who could be my rock and my redeemer and that's the personal impact this has on me. I also feel like there was something even wider that God was speaking to me about that I didn't realise until I was preparing this preach and hopefully something that we can all feel across our church and across our city so when I read this passage, I had a few consecutive days where I wrote things down in a little notebook. This isn't really like me. I'm not as organised as people who journal. I wish I was. But for some reason, over, the, over sort of a few days, I had some things that I felt God was speaking to me about and I wrote them down in this notebook. And as I was um, going back to this, when I was preparing for this preach, I felt like God was saying that this was something that he wanted to speak about wanted to share. Because when I initially wrote these down, these were just very personal encouragements to me, but I really feel prompted to share as a a communal encouragement from God. So when I read Psalm 19, um, I just wrote down, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And underneath it, God revives. His law is not to condemn or wear down or inhibit or be boring. It revives my soul. I want to realign myself with God's law and find joy in doing that. And then, so a few days before that, um, I'd been praying and I felt that God had put the word boldness in my head. I hadn't been bold at the time. I hadn't been bold in my faith. I hadn't been bold in challenging my friends and love. I hadn't been bold just in a lot of areas in my life. So as I was praying and thinking about this, I wrote down that I want to be bold to speak up to my colleagues, I want to be bold to challenge my friends in love, I want to be bold to pray and expect things, I want to be bold to trust my voice and use it. Um, So I wrote that down. And then a few days later after that, I had a very bizarre dream. So in my dreams, there's always some really wacky sort of, like, elements mixed in with some other things that I think were quite important so in this dream I had a dream where Tim and I were going to be anchoring for this morning so like what Rose was doing this morning we're in this really weird dark wooden building no idea where it was but I was at the back um, and I knew I had to get up to the front and preach so I had these really annoying like strappy sandals that I had to put on so and Tim was like gesturing like come on like we need to start the service and I like managed to tie one sandal and hadn't managed to tie the other sandal so I like hobbled up to the front Like, try to get to the front in time and did like a really kind of rubbish, rush job of leading the service. And I woke up feeling really frustrated and I felt like God was saying, Be ready. And I was like, Right, fair enough. That makes sense. I should have been ready. (laughs) And so when I wrote these things down individually, they had like quite a nice, meaningful encouragement. But as I was preparing for this preach, he took me back to these things and told me to look at them in order. So I wrote down boldness first. And so I think it's that we need to be bold in our faith and bold in our obedience to God, which is what. The second bit says in Psalm 19, so to be bold in our obedience to God, and then that we need to be ready with this. And I truly feel like there is some transition or movement happening in Fallowfield, in our city, where we are going to see a wave of people come to know God who haven't known him before. And I don't know how and I don't know why. I know why. I don't know when is what I meant to say. But I'm expectant, so I'm trusting, I'm bold, I'm going to try and be obedient and I'm going to try and be ready as well because I don't want to be on the wrong side of a revival. I want to be expectant on the front line.